This episode is brought to you by the French Embassy and Campus France in Kenya. On this episode of African Retooled, adapt or die. Right. So for you to adapt, you have to know what you're adapting to. You have to know what is affecting you. Right. So how does climate change affect you in your sphere of life? If you are a HR practitioner, how does that look like in terms of the hires that you're going to make? Mm-hmm. Um, how does it look like in terms of the staff that you're going to have? What type of qualities or expertise do you need on board to ensure that you know the organization is running smoothly? Do you have the tools to face the future? Welcome to African Retooled. A podcast where Chris and Martin, two African recruiters, will explore the changing world of work. Where students come to learn and gain insights into the world of work. Discover how they can continue to tool themselves with skills of the future. Where managers will explore with us how to confidently navigate the complexities of future work in order to be key disruption agents and remain competitive. Where CEOs, business owners come to understand the evolution of work, allowing them to leverage on emerging roles and remain competitive and achieve their objectives. Bonjour à tous. Welcome to yet again another episode of African Retooled. Salut Martin. Bonjour. Oh no. Martin, you say salut. <laughs> salut. I'm learning. I'm learning. That is true. That is true. Anyway, aujourd'hui nous allons parler en français parce que c'est très facile, n'est-ce pas Martin? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is me bullying you. Anyway, so, so you much. guys are going to have to trust that I'm not abusing you. Um, I'm simply trying to show off and show that I can actually speak some French. Uh-huh. Yes. So anyway, Martin, uh, we're back again. Uh, excited to have this episode with you as always. What a season. I mean, wow. The, the, if you're watching the news every minute, every hour, there's just so much stress and madness going on in the world what what are you, what what's your view i mean it's crazy now we have we have a new strain in india for the coronavirus um I, farmers are complaining that the rains have delayed others are saying that there's too much rainfall um the other day there was a, there was a rainfall advisory for western kenya it's you know you you keep wondering will it will it let up i know i know anyway so i guess um it's funny you, you talk about rains and 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 the skies um on this episode we have a we have the unique pleasure of speaking to an individual whose passion lies in an area many people hear about have little knowledge about um mm-hmm. the question is when you talk about climate change climate adaptation i mean these are very interesting discussions but why should i care will it actually affect my life my job so martin talk to us about our guest today and, and what what we hope to achieve Exactly. So Sarah Murabula is a climate adaptation expert. Um you know, following her masters in climate change at the University of Nairobi, she chose to pursue a PhD in geography and environment at the University of Toulouse. She has worked with the likes of Isipe in her quest to answer many questions around climate change, climate adaptation, and we are extremely excited to welcome Sarah on this show. Welcome Sarah. Sarah Murabula, welcome to this show. We are so excited to have you here today. Um looking forward to a fantastic show with you. Thank you for having me. Great. Um you have been an environmental scientist. You know, you 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 studied here and um you did your masters and then you did what not many people um 
go into nowadays is you went into a PhD. And the interesting thing for those listening is that you took um, your PhD in France. Yeah, that was um, because my first degree was actually um, here in Kenya. Mm -hmm. I did a degree, my bachelor's was in environmental planning and management. So uh, for a very long time, I had actually thought that I would follow through with the planning aspect of it, you know, urban planning, physical planning. Right. But um, there are circumstances that occurred immediately after I finished my bachelor's degree. So I moved to Kisumu um, to pursue an internship at the Municipal Council of Kisumu. Mm-hmm. And while there, I was invited for several um, conferences that had nothing to do with planning, but were more focused on climate, um, climate change and its impacts in Africa, particularly. And it was at this point that now my interest in climate change, um, science, and just, you know, adaptation was roused. Mm-hmm. And so after that, after I started my career, I now went and did my Master of Science in Climate Change at the University of Nairobi. And it was during this time that one of my supervisors um, shared with me a call for applications for a PhD program in France. Mm -hmm. And I made the application, in fact, just before I graduated um, for my master's. So, in fact, I had finished. So, I graduated and then left the following day to start my studies in France. So, that was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a roller coaster. But that is how I ended up now doing um, my PhD in France. And, and how was that for you, you know, from a mental process? Um, France is not somewhere where most of us would, especially ang- Anglophone Africa, thinks about doing their further studies. Um, you know, was it something that you, you had to take some time and actually think about, I'm going to this place, do they speak English? Will I be taught in English? And if not, how will I cope with that? What, what was that decision-making process like for you? Um, for me, I think the decision was quite easy because of the interest that I had in the research project that I had um, applied for mm-hmm. in uh, during the scholarship application period. So just the whole process of um, coming up with the proposal for that, you know, it gave me that desire, you know, I, I really hope I get this. Then um, the supervisor who had um, forwarded the call for applications to me, Dr. Pinar, he also made sure that I got to meet my potential supervisor because he had to accept to supervise me first before even I could you know, complete the application. So when I met with him and we had a discussion, so he was um, bilingual, he mm. spoke French and English. So it made me comfortable because I knew that the people that I would be in direct contact with, I would be able to communicate with them. And then secondly, um, the support that was put in place in terms of my getting to learn you know the language my supervisor who shared the call for applications is french and based mm-hmm. in kenya right so at least i knew that there would be that support there and then with the scholarship also there was that offer to have um, french classes and i took up um, the offer because they subsidized the cost for scholarship holders from um, the French government. So the decision was sort of made easier, one, because of the interest that I had in the project and also because of the support system in terms of the supervisor that I had um, with me at the time. 
Great. And so it's, it's good to know that that whole support infrastructure exists for you here. Like you didn't have to uh, be talking back and forth to, to people on the other side in France, but a lot of that infrastructure sat here. Uh, you took in your, that aspect, yes. Yes. And, and you took your, your, your lessons with Alliance Francaise? Yes, I was at the Alliance Francaise um, from the beginning. So we had a crash course um, because we got the scholarship and then I had no, you know, background. I had done French, mm-hmm. I think, for a term in high school. Yeah. And then I dropped it and, you know, moved on to other things. Mm-hmm. But then this, it, it was necessary for me to learn at least some measure of French to be able to get by yeah. for the three months that I was going to be there mm-hmm. um, for the first visit. So um, the French embassy and the Alliance Française organized for us to have a crash course um, in French, mm-hmm. where basically they helped us, you know, if you need to ask for direction, what do you do? If you lose your luggage, you know, this is what you say. This is how you listen for the announcements at the airport. Um, this is how you take the metro. Um, these are the do's and don'ts of the French culture. At least when you get there, you know, there are things that you can ask for. These are the differences in how we sign things and how they sign things. Mm-hmm. So we're just basically given, you know, like a crash course in French. And then um, fortunately or unfortunately for me, on the day that I arrived, I had to use everything <laughs> that we learned <laughs> on that day because one, um, my luggage was not checked through to my final destination, which was Toulouse. So I got there, stood at the carousel until that small door closed and I'm like, you know, where is my luggage? So I had to go to the office, um, report lost luggage. Then they give me, you know, like the map to the um, the apartment where I was supposed to be staying. I got off at the wrong metro stop, so I had to ask for direction. So I basically used everything we had learned in class mm-hmm. on my very first day um, in France. Interesting. It was not working, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I I know that everyone's experience is different, um, mm-hmm. but what what was the sort of time that took you, it took between application to the time you were actually in France? Um, for the first time, how how long was that period? I may be mistaken or a bit off, mm-hmm. but I think it could have been three months three at months. minimum, if okay. I'm not wrong. Okay. Yeah, because so many things were going on at that time, mm-hmm. so I I may be mistaken. It might have been shorter mm-hmm. between the application and you know getting back the feedback on the outcome. The outcome. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you 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 mentioned something that uh, you were going to be in France for three months. This speaks yes. to the structure of your course and and how it it was going to be rolled out, because you know it's well, a PhD. People here yeah. in three months. They're like, mm, okay, what what's that about? <laughs> well, I am not um, as you know, my PhD was not as short as some African leaders that we know of. <laughs> <wives>, so. <laughs> I can assure you I took the full amount of time. Um, It's the structure of the program that um, allowed me to be able to spend three months um, in a year in France and then, you know, be back in Kenya. So I did PhD by research, Uh um, which basically means that it was, you know, research from the first year to the last year. But what, um, the way the program was structured is I had to spend, I think, 100 hours just taking up, you know, seminars and workshops to um, things that build up on on my area of expertise. So uh, this was counted as part of, you know, the PhD program. 
So um, I would be there for three months where I would meet with my supervisors, you know, go through whatever data that we had. So the first year was more refining the proposal, agreeing um, on the research points because coming back to Kenya now, I was going to go to the field and collect my data. So um, that is how it was structured. So you have three months um, in France each year with your supervisor. And then, of course, now the final leg now involves the defense. Right. And and the whole process was what, two, three years? Um, my PhD took four years. Four years. Four. Okay. So yes. definitely longer Ideally than... Ideally, three yes. years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A lot longer than many other... PhD holders, as you mentioned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a lot so, longer. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm going to I'm going to throw a curveball here, um, Chris. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you had you studied in France, one level lower, the master's level. What was your experience like? <laughs> yeah, that is indeed a curveball because I was not going to take questions today. Exactly. But <laughs> um, yeah, so Sarah, you and I share um, that particular story in the sense that I actually also lived in Toulouse in France. Ah. And so um, I think my experience was really, really uh, exciting. Um, unlike you, I did a master's there. And mm -hmm. um, it took, I, I had to actually um, go to France and live there for a year and a half. Wow, okay. Um, the, the interesting thing is I, I could not actually speak French, French when I went to France. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was an interesting one. Though I know they are very particular about, even today, they're particular about you going into France with a certain threshold for proficiency. Oh, I think it's yeah. B2, which is B2. Um, yeah. But um, so, so because I found a course that taught in English, um, I was actually able to survive for at least mm -hmm. the first months before I actually could start learning my French by myself and, and really being able to survive on the streets. So I think yeah. for our listeners, I mean, you can indeed find courses in France that teach in English, but there's value in, in obviously picking up on the language to be able to survive on the streets, to be able to buy, buy your, your, your groceries, um, like Sarah's story, find your luggage when you lose it, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and find your way to your hotel. Yes, and yes. I think more importantly, that just having a, an additional language definitely goes a long way in increasing your, your opportunities globally. Yeah, I, I, I think I, you know, I always tell Chris, I think it was very brave of him and, you know, people and you, Sarah, it's very brave to um, just go out there and do what others haven't done. And what you've now done is that you've opened that door to others who are thinking of, you know, alternative um, destinations, really. Um, yeah. Or yeah. of study, yeah. and even from a from a cost perspective, yeah. And we can go into that later. But um, mm -hmm. how? No, yeah. So, Martin, sorry to cut you short. And and what I also got the opportunity to do, Sarah, when I was in Toulouse, Toulouse yes. being the capital of aviation globally, mm -hmm. or at least in Europe, the Boeing guys will not be happy if I say They're this. Well Indeed. <laughs> yes. So I yeah. got to work. I got to work for Airbus when I was in Toulouse. Ah, um, and so I mean, just just being able, this little man from Kenya, sit um, able to walk past the assembly line and see A three fifties, A three eighties. That was a very, very blessed, um, very good opportunity for me um, mm -hmm. to to just learn about different things, mm -hmm. learn about different culture, see how it is to work in France. So, and all of this because I chose to to study there. Yeah, yeah, you took that bold step. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's very necessary. I know we've had this discussion in a different forum where I I I said that I have become now an advocate at least for learning, you know, one 
foreign language mm-hmm. because the number of opportunities that it opens up and it also just opens up your mind to even learning about new cultures and how you know different cultures can be integrated for the betterment of an individual's life absolutely so and it also provides so many opportunities um not only in terms of um jobs but even just rich intercultural you know interactions with people absolutely so, absolutely yeah so, Sarah, I, mean, i advocate for that excellent i mean that's that's fantastic what what would you say um in your day to day life when you were in france was your biggest cultural shock hmm. um i think i don't know whether i really had um any cultural shock as it were because with the crash lessons um in the first year and then of course throughout the way the lessons are structured mm-hmm. you are given you know, an introduction into the french culture so maybe the only thing was tasting snails for the first time <laughs> um i really i i couldn't yes i could not believe that my mouth was actually watering before i ate them because <laughs> the idea and then smelling it and seeing it are two totally different things so uh-huh. so, <laughs> so 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 the kissing on the cheeks did not startle you not really i no i i think also because i had had interactions with um Europeans who were you know like the different number of kisses on the cheeks right. so that was okay and then also that you know um it's not a full on hug so it's not like you're hugging someone <laughs> it, it it's totally different so i wasn't really uncomfortable with that and it's just touching the cheek and making the air kisses it, so for it, me yeah oh so those air kisses yeah. are real you don't have to touch the cheek of the you other person you just touch the cheek and you make the sound oh, so it's cheek on cheek <laughs> yeah cheek on cheek then you make the kissing sound oh, okay okay <laughs> bizu, bizu. Yeah, i didn't have any creepy people kissing me on the cheek all the time yeah. <laughs> uh, okay yeah so i mean um so you have had a fantastic exp- um journey around um tooling yourselves on on or yourself on climate change environmental studies and mm-hmm. today um uh, um we're calling you or you call yourself a climate um adaptation specialist or expert yes. yeah yeah uh, now i guess for our audience um the conversation around climate change climate mitigation climate adaptation is is one that for some strange reason in in this continent is not a conversation we have as much people didn't even people don't even understand what it it really entails mm-hmm. so what 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 is it that you've been involved in what are some of the projects you've done that perhaps might shed some light as to what a career in climate adaptation and what a person who calls himself a climate adaptation specialist does um so if i go back to the beginning of my career i started off as a research assistant on a climate change project that focused on ensuring that um ecosystems which is just in simpler term you know the environment in which we operate and everything that goes along with it so be it your water sources be it um your forest you know so um and food security so how do we promote the resilience of this um systems in eastern africa that is how we began so the research basically focused on looking at the knowledge gaps that existed in um one climate change knowledge in eastern africa and um ways and means of adapting to the changes that were occurring so my particular role was on the elaboration of adaptation strategies so this um basically involved just 
looking at the holistic way in which these environments were. So what do I mean by that? Um, how vulnerable are these populations to climate change? So that involves um, looking at what we call indicators of vulnerability. So how exposed are they, for example, to temperature changes, rainfall changes? Because in Africa, most of um, our agriculture is reliant on rainfall. So we have not yet reached that point where we can say that, you know, we are fully dependent or we are majorly dependent on irrigation or other modes of, you know, um, ensuring that our agriculture uh, flourishes. So um, that is what I was, um, the responsibilities that I had or what my work entailed at the time. So just looking at how farmers were vulnerable to um, the impacts of climate change, did they understand what climate change is? in the first place. So enabling them to see the changes that have been there. So mapping out, for example, if it is the rainy season, have they always started the time that they were used to? And for the period of time that they're supposed to know to receive that amount of rainfall. So do they see those changes in and of themselves without even looking at the data? So we had the data which showed, for example, the rainfall that was received was, yes, what was supposed to be received in a season, but, for example, if the rain was supposed to come from March to May, they had much rainfall, and then the rainfall ceased, but the amount that they received was too much in a short period of time. So we have that data. Then now we relate it to what the experience for the farmers on the ground is. And I think you, you were also involved in a project with ICPE, um on entomology. What was that about? Yes, so this project, um, it was an interdisciplinary project, the project that I've talked about. It was called CHIESA. So climate change impacts on ecosystem services and food security in Eastern Africa. ICPE was the lead uh, investigator or the PI of the project. So basically, ICPE is an insect science organization. And one of the things that the entomologists on the team were looking at was, you know, how temperature changes are um, affecting the occurrence of insect pests and their natural enemies. So... Uh, for example, in a maize-growing region. So in areas, what I would term in layman's language as the lowlands, what insect pests and diseases are there? And when you move higher up in altitude, are we seeing changes in terms of, you know, the insect pests that are occurring there? So, for example, if it is the maize um, stem borer or the stem borer, can you track a movement in terms of occurrence uh, dependent on the altitude because usually in colder regions the occurrence of the Stambora is not very high. But with warming temperatures then you can perceive a move. You know, in areas where they never used to experience Stambora damage now, you're having uh, occurrences of this um, insect pest. And you see the problem with that is that if you have insect pests occurring where they were not before, then that means that their natural enemies um, also have to sort of, let me use the word, catch up. So you will find that there is an uncontrolled population of insect pests in an area mm -hmm. due to, you know, changing temperatures and environmental conditions that support their being there and their natural enemies are not um, up to speed, you know, with the move up in altitude. Right. So you find that then there is a high level of infestation in different areas because there is no naturally occurring mitigating factor 
to reduce the insect pest population. So, Sarah, one thing that you know we we have been talking about in in this space would be using very many different terminologies: climate change, mm. climate mitigation. Climate. What what is what what are all these different terminologies, and how does one link to the other, if at all? So, um, in in basic terms, it would be climate change occurs when there's a normal, you know, there's a shift from the normal weather patterns that we are used to. So, and it is usually measured, you know, in 30 period, um, 30 year period uh, at minimum, so that you're able to get a trend. So, when when you map it, you'll be able to see that, for example, um, if it is the temperature, it has gone up. If it is the amount of precipitation or rainfall, you know, it has shifted. It has either gone up in this period of time. Um, we are having more events where, you know, we have flooding. We are having more events. So this, these are now the impacts of climate change, you know, that are manifested now. We call them now the biophysical impacts that we can see. So the fires that you've been hearing about in Australia and in California, um, the flooding that we have been experiencing, the prolonged periods of drought that we have been having. So these are the impacts that are manifested as a result of climate change. Now, in Kenya, we are reliant on agriculture for our livelihood. And the agricultural space is particularly impacted by two things that are actually changing. So that is the temperature and the precipitation. So now for the farmers in this or for the people who are reliant on, you know, agriculture, then it becomes important for them to find ways of adjusting to this impact that we're talking about. And this is now where now climate change adaptation comes in. So you're going to have a prolonged period of drought. So this means then that you look for drought-resistant seeds. You're adapting to that um, situation. Uh, you look for, you know, water conservation, you know, efficient management of water then you're adapting to the lack of water that is an impact that you're experiencing. Um, and then mitigation is what the world's leaders have been trying to do, you know, reducing the emissions so that we do not have, you know, increasing emissions of greenhouse gases. So we are trying to mitigate or to stop the problem from occurring. So right now they're trying to prevent a further two-degree increase in temperature because that would mean then that all these impacts that we've been having, be it the flooding, it's going to be more intense. Mm -hmm. We're going to have islands, you know, being underwater because of the melting icebergs. So this is just an indicator of what we mean when we say, you know, this is climate change adaptation. This is climate mitigation or the mitigation of climate risk. And this is climate change. I mean, very interesting stuff. Um, I'll be honest, Sarah, um, and in, in preparing for this this episode, we obviously did some research around climate change, just trying to understand. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is not a conversation that you have typically at the, at the, at the, um, at the dinner table mm -hmm. or in the bar. Um, it, yeah. it typically <laughs> is a conversation that is had by at least the people in, in, in this continent particularly, probably would be, con the farmers would be more concerned about it. Environmentalists, and possibly yeah. someone who's looking at this as a cause and they're an accountant somewhere, but they are passionate about environment. Mm. And so mm. it's almost as if while the world is, is really uh, screaming about the, the effects of climate change, we're, we're seeing hurricanes all over the place. Even in Africa, we have floods. The other day yeah. I, I was reading, um, there's a cyclone coming through in Tanzania. 
um, this last decade was the hottest um, recorded in terms of uh, temperature. So it is a mm. crisis. The, 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 the world is looking at this as a crisis, but this doesn't form or does not come as um, to the fore as a conversation we are having on the continent. Why is that and, and what's your observation? This is African Retooled. So listeners, on this episode, we have a unique opportunity for you to win some goodies courtesy of Campus France. Indeed, so we encourage you to listen all the way to the end. That is where you'll find the question. Um, this last decade was the hottest um, recorded in terms of uh, temperature. So it is a mm. crisis. The, 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 the world is looking at this as a crisis, but this doesn't form or does not come as um, to the fore as a conversation we're having on the continent. Why is that and, and what's your observation? Um, for me, and these are my personal thoughts, I think one of the things that has happened is that you know, there has been the politicization of climate change, which I think is both to its advantage and its disadvantage because when it is made into, you know, is it happening, is it not happening, yet the data shows that, you know, climate change is happening and has been happening for a long time. And we are actually seeing the impact of this. So, and then just that lack of information. Um, one of the things that we em embarked, um, you know, um, on doing with the project that I mentioned earlier was also getting this information, you know, in the media space. How do we report on climate change? How is this information tilled in a, in a manner that allows the general population to understand what is happening and the actual impacts that are going to be felt you know, in different spheres of life. So, you know, there, there are many things that happen and then you're like, yeah, you know, that the, the climate has changed. So, for example, uh, it, it never used to rain in, in February. Then you, you see, you say that is, you know, climate change. But um, climate change actually focuses now on the long-term shift in um, climate patterns. It's not just a one-day or a one-off event. So, the minimum that is measured is uh, 30 years. So when that change is registered over a period of 30 years, so it's divided into 30-year periods, then you're able to, you know, that change is very clear and very distinct. Um, Chris, like you rightly mentioned, if you look at the data, last year was recorded as being the hottest year on record. And the year before that, that had been the hottest year on record. Another thing, when you look at, the occurrence even of flooding and drought. So in Africa, one of the things is that they will be more, in terms of uh, their occurrence, they will increase. And we are seeing that because the prolonged periods of drought um, are being experienced on the ground. When it rains, the, the, you know, there's flooding. And, and we are not really taking all these things into consideration to ensure that, one, agri the agricultural um, supply chain continues uninterrupted. Yeah. So I think most of it has to do with the availability of information and how this information is passed along to the common Monanchi. Yeah, Monanchi would be the citizen for our African yes, audience. Yes, citizen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess um, I'm I'm clear. I'm, obviously, because I've done some reading, but it's again not a conversation that is normally that comes to the fore every other day. So I, I mean, I'm now clear that it's it's a real serious situation. Yeah. And we need to be discussing it more often and, 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 and perhaps take more efforts towards becoming climate smart. Mm -hmm. um, I guess 
we're even coming off the back of uh, the, the, the global summit that was just facilitated by Joe Biden in the States the other day. And yeah. for the first time, uh, they've issued a budget, an infrastructure budget that is $2 trillion, the largest ever. He's basically issued a budget. Uh, how, do you yeah. how do you say it? Released a budget that, mm-hmm. that, that is supposed to then have a direct impact on jobs. Within, yeah. within, and this is not something that people typically see the correlation, that when you think about climate change, there is a direct impact on jobs. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that's, Martin, something that um, we were hoping to speak to you about. I mean, people don't necessarily see that their jobs are likely to be impacted by the climate change conversation in this continent. Yeah. And I think maybe when, when uh, your job becomes impacted, <laughs> maybe then you'll begin to talk about the conversation. Yes. I don't know. Is that coming alive or is that an example or something we should be emulating on the continent um, from a policy perspective uh, as a way of creating creating jobs? Um, yes, I think that is very necessary, majorly because, you know, climate change has both the naturally occurring reasons, you know, where with the heating of the planet and, and all that, but also there's the anthropogenic or rather the human-induced reasons for climate change. And that is where now you find that most people, we talked about the politicization of climate change, and this is where now it comes in because the jobs that are currently enabling, for example, the industrialization of the so-called fast world are powered by things that contribute directly to global warming. So the the coal plants and yes. So, um, and and emissions of greenhouse gases. So when you talk about um, climate change mitigation, there's that blowback to say, um, no, because we are going to lose jobs. But you see, on this other hand, with adaptation, like uh, Martin um, very aptly put it, there is an opportunity to get, you know, like the, the future of what the workspace will look like now with adaptation opportunities or even just helping people be in a position to make decisions to adapt. Because unfortunately now for the continent, we are at that point where we are still reacting um, to climate change. So our adaptation is mostly reactive and not anticipatory. And now with the information that we have, we can enable anticipatory decision-making in the agricultural space, uh, particularly uh, by just looking at how, one, the data that is available and putting that in a way that allows for decision-making that takes into consideration the impacts that will be felt at the local level and enabling, you know, the development of um, different types of work for people in that area or yeah, locality. Yeah, I guess to break it down for our audience, when people think about climate change, climate adaptation, they imagine that this is, again, a focus on a farmer and, and what mm-hmm. they need to do differently mm-hmm. or someone who's an environmental scientist or I don't know what you call them. So the mm-hmm. question is, how do we break it down for an everyday employee in a company mm-hmm. to understand that climate change and climate adaptation can indeed um, be something that impacts you and it's not a hobby, it's something that you need to take um, serious. And that you can actually find a career in this space. You know, climate change, if you look at it in most, even just for project planning and how it is incorporated in different areas, it is labeled as a quote-unquote cross-cutting issue. 
because it does not just impact one area of life. It cuts across the board, impacting every single area of life. So let me give a very um, good example. Climate change impacts on infrastructure. Correct. So you get a high amount of rainfall. The, the roads are flooded and you're cut off. You know, something as simple as you not being able to access your place of work. You are a supply chain person. So you have goods that need to move. For example, if you're in Nairobi, let's say you're moving goods from Tika to the airport. So you have to pass via Tika Road, for example. Tika Road is flooded. There is traffic. You're carrying perishable goods. It, it just shows that it is not just, you know, the farmer on the ground with the rainfall being insufficient or the temperatures being too high for the crops, or, you know, population of insect pests increasing because of uh, changes in temperature and, 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 and precipitation on the farm. So it is in different ways. You are an insurance person. You need to insure people against risk, but you do not have even enough data to see how, you know, what risk is there and how that, that translates for you in terms of the costs that you will incur if it is in compensating people. So it is not just one area of life that is impacted by climate change. So we cannot just box it to say climate change is impacting on agriculture only. Yeah. Because even the raw goods that are needed for the industry, climate change affects that. So if you do not have a steady supply of what you need in your production company, then the jobs that you're doing, you know, if it is crop that has been destroyed in the field and you need to process that, um, if, for example, you have poor quality coffee that has been harvested, you're an exporter, you need um, high quality coffee because you have a niche market in Europe, um, you do not get the, the quality that you wanted from the farmers that you're buying it from. So it affects the whole value chain and not just one aspect of it. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's the conversation that needs to come to the fore where business leaders today need to be aware that climate change is something that's coming. It's with us today. Mm -hmm. It's going to affect jobs. If, for instance, the stuff you've described, if your business supply chain is affected, then yeah. we're likely to say, look, we can't sustain the population we have and therefore we're, we're, we're laying off stuff. Or if you lived in a particular city in Africa and that, that city suddenly flooded, you become displaced, your livelihoods become affected. And yeah. so it's, it's, a, it's a real, refugees. yeah, you have environmental refugees. And so these are real concerns. And I think, um, and, and, and over and above what we're talking about, what we have seen, especially from, from the, the Global Climate Summit that was just concluded, um, a lot of these countries are now making commitments, very solid. I mean, and I know they've always done so. But there's some real commitments towards spending real money to become carbon. What's the word? Carbon. Carbon neutral. Carbon neutral. Yeah. Carbon and, neutral. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think more and more, you begin to see companies now looking for efficient ways of delivering sustainability. Yeah. yeah that's exactly. Yeah. So the sustainability, mm -hmm. the the discussions around how their processes are run, and and I know that in some in some countries they even have some tax rebates or around companies that are actually demonstrating. Um, sustainable operations mm -hmm. and uh, that are carbon neutral, that are carbon efficient. And so more and more, and I think for our audience sake, there will be a push towards operations and companies that, that are demonstrating some form of climate smart approaches to their business. Yes. Yeah. And, and, for, mm -hmm. my, and for my reading, Sarah, and I'm keen to hear your view, um, assuming that then we need to build 
better buildings because the companies are saying look we want to now demonstrate a more sustainable way a, a, a way of doing our business so better buildings more energy efficient approaches we need mm-hmm. to demonstrate that we're we're doing better waste waste management uh, um better recycling i see these yeah. as all different streams where real jobs could em- emanate from um you're very right you see with the mitigation and the adaptation of it um to climate change let me use the example of um you know the building so you have more energy efficient um use for example so you have the installation of the solar panels where you do not have to rely for example in Kenya mostly our power supplies from um hydroelectric power so if we can supplement that with the solar energy you see it also gives um if it is are they engineers i think mm-hmm. yes. um also opportunities to you know um come up with more you know better solar panels that can harness we have a lot of sunlight in kenya so how do we get this power to be able to you know run the um operations on a farm for example um it was even in the papers one of the institutions that has um tried to or rather is balancing out um energy efficiency measures is isipe where they have installed um solar panels that has taken you know reduced their consumption um from the national grid there are ways in which you know this jobs that you have talked about they they come about so the production of this um for example the solar panels the people who have you know urban planners with enough knowledge to know that this is how um the climate impacts on this particular area of the city will be so how are we going to work with the engineers and the architects to come up with a building that one allows for efficient use for example if there's sufficient wind in that area how are we going to work around you know water conservation um and and use efficient use of water in this area even things just like urban agriculture because you know you can have a rooftop garden where you do not need to um go out and you know start purchasing things that you can actually use within th- that uh, that building so it creates even an avenue even for you know like the creative space where you have that um the people come up with those ideas how they can structure it in a way that you know you can have that rooftop garden where people can rest and at the same time have um you know the the the, the building provides rest and at the same time it is an energy efficient and water efficient building yeah yeah so i think if we can then segue into jobs real jobs that uh, people need to look out for as they as they consider becoming a more what do you call it energy efficient or energy con- energy, or energy conscious con- or green green jobs they like to call them yeah yeah um again i'm i'm very cognizant of the fact that our continent is not heavily industrial Mm-hmm. and some of the initiatives around uh, infrastructure around finding energy smart uh, opportunities some of them involve creating machines that will then harness some of this renewable energy the question to you is what are some of the things that people can look out for on the continent immediately in the next one or two years that can begin to channel them into green jobs or yeah i don't know if my question is clear Um yes I think your question is clear one of the things that um of immediate importance because whether we like it or not you know climate change is happening and we have to adapt to it 
So, and one of the key areas that um, is emerging right now is um, crop insurance as a focus of, you know, adaptation in the agricultural space. Mm -hmm. So not many um, insurance companies are focusing on this and it needs a lot of data as well. So it is both for the, the farmers who need to understand how the crop insurance works and now for the insurance companies also to come up with products that can target the farmers specifically. And also in a way that, you know, the premiums, you know, come up with, with ways where they will accept, well, you know, you have farmer groups who um, who come together and then they're able to pay their premiums um, in that way. Yeah. So crop insurance is one of the emerging areas that um, can be looked at. Another area is um, data science, which is very key. So like I mentioned, um, I have had the blessing of being in interdisciplinary teams for the whole of my career. And one of the ways that adaptation works is bringing different aspects of research together to form a whole, you know, collective and understanding on how, for example, if it is a farmer, needs to adapt to climate change. So, for example, you can have, in England, they have a futures website, which provides information for farmers at the local level. So they gather data. So if it is impact, this is how the, rain, uh, the rainfall looks like. This is what the agrometrological forecast says. This is where you can get, for example, if it is seeds that are, in our context now, resistant to, to drought or drought tolerant is the more correct term. And then, um, and this is where, for example, the market for the crop that you will plant can be found. So if we can get this information, at the very least, make it available to the extension agents that service the different areas, then that, and, and also make it accessible on, on the phone, where, you know, with just the, on your smartphone, you can be able to access this information, or with your, um, in Kenya, we call it Kabambe, I don't know, like the Nokia 3310s where you can, you know, do the star whatever number hash and you're able to get this information in a format that is easily understandable. So these are areas that we can look at to see that, you know, this is where the future is. We need data and we need this data harnessed in a way that can be understood by even the farmer on the ground who, for example, may not have gone to school or they may be, you know, taking up agriculture as a means of making a living even after going to school, so in a manner that is understandable to them. Yeah. Then also with adaptation, you know, you have the post-harvest management of this food. So you're not going to dry all of it. I am sure that in the food processing industry, there are ways in which, you know, value can be added to different types of food. So the it making, I have seen, for example, you know, transforming uh, mango into, you know, like the powder form that can be, you know, used, later to make juices and stuff like that. So it is not just one area, but there are diverse ways in which this can be done. And so maybe just to add before I, I, I finish up on this point, research that has been done before has usually categorized technologies in adaptation into three. So you have the hardware where you focus now on the physical tool. So for example, Chris, you had mentioned mechanization or, you know, just using farm equipment that allows for, you know, greening of the farm or reduction of, you know, carbon emissions and all that. Right. You can have the different crop varieties that are drought tolerant. Then you have the software which focuses now on the research and the farming practices that 
um, the farmers are undertaking. So how do you feed into that in this aspect? And like I said, for me, when I look at it, the future of it is more data intensive. So are we getting sufficient data to feed um, the software, the farming practices, the research that is being conducted? Can it be harnessed and given to the farmer or to the agricultural value chain in a way that is specific and localized for that um, area of, of interest? Oh, yeah, and then, sorry, the third one is the organizational wear or the org wear, which focuses now on the institutions that are within, you know, the adaptation space in agriculture and agri-tech. Yeah, that's that's very insightful. And, and I think listening to you, I'm very clear that um, with the global shift to a, a, a low-carbon economy and with mm-hmm. all these commitments that are being made by all these leaders, the, the walls are caving in on people and their careers and their preparedness. I think today, all the stuff you're talking about, there's going to be a significant skills gap. Yes. And and what I see is that with companies then being pressurized and getting incentives to actually be better, then mm-hmm. they will begin to in, uh, require more from the employees. So on the on this on this show, African Retooled, we constantly talk about people picking up on digital skills. But the other thing I'm quickly seeing as a very important skill is your knowledge of climate adaptation and how that impacts your career. So that if you're a tax specialist, you need to, your company will begin to track that kind of data. And how does that impact you from a tax knowledge standpoint? If you're an accountant, uh, with all companies now beginning to to, to track those numbers, again, that will become important. I think about a HR professional needing to recruit and understand the people that it needs to bring in or upskill its staff on climate change and climate adaptation concepts. Mm-hmm. I think about, um, like you talked about the insurance guys, I think about the salesman who needs to sell and position some of those equipment. Yeah. And so I, I, I now begin to see clearly that there will be a need for many people and literally everyone to pick up on their knowledge of a climate smart world. To just to add to that slightly is then that will also drive some form of demand from the consumer um, to put some form of pressure on, on, on these companies to be more climate smart or engage in environmentally conscious practices. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we complain that fuel is expensive and yet already we have the advent of electric cars. And so, yeah. you know, creating that, that um, demand for these sort of cars and then that goes into the demand for the mechanics who can then maintain the small parts. They, I know they are largely mm-hmm. maintenance-free, these cars, um, but still, uh, there is still some form of maintenance needed, software updates on these cars. And, and yeah, and the infrastructure, and the infrastructure for the charging of the vehicles on the street. Yeah. I think a yeah. piece we've not talked about largely and, and is, is around the government and their impact on all these conversations. I think mm-hmm. nothing that we are discussing can come to life unless our governments across Africa can put in place policy that then forces us to think like this, and which is why initially I said we just don't seem to be talking about climate adaptation every day in everything that we're doing. Yeah. Um, I think the government of Kenya has actually tried in terms of, you know, trying to put in place, um, or let me not use the word trying, putting in place um, policies that can support um, climate change, you know, planning, adaptation, risk mitigation, and all that. Um, So 
at the global level, we have the, you know, the guiding framework for the different, um, you know, for climate change. So what the government were advised to do is to domesticate this. And Kenya has done that with the National Action Plan for Climate Change. And now it is a requirement that the counties also have to adopt and adapt this. Rather, it is adapt and adopt this at the county level. And then now bring it down uh, to the municipal level and all that. So, and then we also have the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction, which also, um, when you look at it, it also focuses on how, you know, how do you respond to the risk that, you know, is there. So particularly, um, they have also clauses on agriculture and how that needs to be responded to. And this framework has also been um, adopted and adopted by the Kenyan government, their signatories. So that means that at the very least, we have a global framework with which, you know, we can copy this. So uh, is that enough? Is it sufficient? In my opinion, we still have um, a long way to go in terms of one, publicizing the policies that are in place. So the different, uh, for example, the different sectors, you know, are, are affected differently by, by climate change impact. So their adaptation and their mitigation um, aspects will also be different. Chris, you mentioned um, tax, for example. So if the taxman um, is taxing agricultural companies that um, are experiencing losses, for example, then it would be good for them to have like a, a climate or a, a climate specialist on board for them to, to be able to map for them that you see in this quarter, you will expect low returns because um, this company X, you know, let, let me say like the, the large taxpayers, they suffered or will suffer a loss because their main producer of, let's say, cashew nuts or macadamia nuts um, suffered a loss in this season. So when they file and you see that there is, you know, this low return, it is because of this. So you're even able to anticipate it and adjust your targets accordingly, you know. Yeah, so I was just going to say that um, right now um, you're, you're in the company of your fellow scientists and your mm -hmm. fellow environmentalists. But uh, I think the way things are going soon, you shall be in, you shall be in the company of all of us. Yes, <laughs> and that will be a good thing because we all need to awaken to the fact that um, you see we had this tagline when I was starting out my studies um, in in climate uh, change and climate science, where we said adapt or die. Right. So for you to adapt, you have to know what you're adapting to. You have to know what is affecting you. Right. So how does climate change affect you um, in your sphere of life? If you are a HR practitioner, how does that look like in terms of the hires that you're going to make? Mm -hmm. um, how does it look like in terms of the stuff that you're going to have? What type of qualities or expertise do you need on board to ensure that, you know, the organization is running smoothly. Fantastic. I think th that's been amazing for us on the episode, on this on this show, just learning how climate change is really a part of our lives, is, is really something that we need to embrace and talk about more. I don't know, Sarah, do you have any last uh, piece of advice for people who then are keen to then pick up on this skill set? Even if you're a HR professional, you're an accountant somewhere, how can I get involved? How can I get to learn and pick up on this competence? Um, one, there are so many resources um, online nowadays. There are even, you know, um, free e-courses that you can take. Um, the World Bank Open Learning Institute, if I, I got it correctly, 
has you know short courses where you know like self-taught or self-paced courses where which you can take to just be able to understand um what is climate change um how is it impacting different um um areas of life so you can pick so for example climate change and infrastructure climate change and um the economy um so there there are different um courses that you can undertake with regards to that um the ipcc website um that is the international panel on climate change i hope i got that right also has um data that you know covers both sides so the layman or the the translated version where they you know they give you the basics of what climate change is and how the different aspects of um life will be impacted agriculture economy you know so there is um climate science there's um the social economics of climate change so you know the day to day life how will that be affected by climate change and this information is available online and it is free so it would be good for the listeners um of this podcast and even you know when they share now the people who will be listening to this by referral then you get to understand how your particular let me call it career or area of expertise will be impacted by um climate change and how you can either adapt or mitigate those impacts in that um in that sphere where you you're based Awesome, awesome. So, um, Sarah, to take you back to Toulouse, mm-hmm. I shall say merci beaucoup pour votre temps et à bientôt. Merci beaucoup. Et à bientôt. À bientôt. Thank you. In Thank you. in 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 English, it's Asante Nisana, Asante Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> And in Hebrew, <laughs> in Hebrew, I won't go there. We shall ask you while. Okay, have you you say Oriomno. Oriomno. Oh, that you. was a good one. Thank good you so one. much. Thank that you that so sounds much. like Kiluya but it's fine. It's no, Hebrew. Hebrew. <laughs> I know I know a bit of Hebrew also. You know a bit of Hebrew. Yes, yeah. and I, I concur. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being in the Thank show. Thank you for your time. So we had mentioned that we would be looking to give away a hamper from Campus France. Mm-hmm. So the first two people emailing us with the correct answer to this question wins for our listeners outside of Kenya don't worry we got you you can pick up your hamper at the nearest campus france office our email address is hello at africanretooled.org so are you ready for the question are you ready <laughs> so what's the question chris the question is what was sarah's PhD thesis focus on at the University of Toulouse. Simple question. What Very was good. Sarah's PhD thesis focus on at the University of Toulouse? Remember our email is hello at africanretooled.org. Thank you for listening in. Go ahead now and subscribe to African Retooled on Apple Podcast. Google Podcast or your favorite podcast directory. We're excited to hear from you. Send your comments and questions to africanretooled@gmail.com or reach us on Twitter and Instagram on African Retooled. Until then, keep learning, keep growing. Keep retooling.